Hey, so as Vince mentioned, we've been in the book of Galatians for uh, several months now. And here's what, uh, so the book of Galatians was written to a church in a country called Galatia. It was written by a follower of Jesus by the name of Paul. It was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means his thoughts, his words were being guided uh, by that Spirit as he wrote. And Paul's been arguing um, about all the different hopes that are held out by the good news of Jesus, all the different things that come to us when we say yes to Jesus and receive the good news, his good news, the gospel uh, of Jesus. And so first he said, hey, when, you know, when, we, when we step in and we say yes to Jesus, we, uh, our, all of our sin, all of our waywardness, all of our stubbornness, all of our rebellion toward God uh, is accounted for by the grace and mercy of Jesus. All of that gets wiped away so that we can approach God with a clean slate so that when God looks at us, He just sees the righteousness of His Son. And He argues that this, that this right standing with God does not come through keeping the law. It comes instead by faith in the person of Jesus. And then he says, hey, but that's not all. It's like the, the Ronco guys, you know, like, hey, wait, there's more. You know, we're, that's kind of what we're doing here when we start to talk about the gospel. It just keeps going and going and going. There's just more and more and more. Then he says, listen, when we say yes to, to Jesus, we become children of the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. This was a foundational promise meant for all mankind. And Paul argues that we become children of Abraham not by keeping the law, but by faith in Jesus in the same way that Abraham, because he says he argues that Abraham was a man of faith. And then he says, but wait, there's more. That's not all either. Not only is our sin accounted for, not only do we have a right standing with God because of Jesus, not only are we heirs of the promise made to Abraham because of Jesus, but we are also sons. We're sons of God. So God takes people who used to be, you and I, people who used to be, are standing with God. It was that we used to be enemies of God. That we lived in a way that was contrary to God. And God took that standing and He adopted us as sons and daughters. So it's yet another hope held out by the gospel, right? And then today, we're going to argue that not only are we sons, but yet another hope held out by the gospel is that we are heirs. Uh, we're in God's will, so to speak, right? And so we're going to inherit. Uh, we have inherited and we will inherit uh, an estate from God. And we'll talk specifically about what are some of the things that we've inherited. But I want to go back to sons for a minute. So last week, Michael uh, taught and he talked about sonship, daughtership. And uh, a man by the name of J.I. Packer, he's a great author, wrote a classic work on God called Knowing God. Um, and here's what he asks. He asks a question. It's a great question. He says, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? And I, I would encourage you to kind of think through how would you answer that question? What is a Christian? Some of you think that a Christian is somebody that goes to church. Others of you think that a Christian is someone who walks down an aisle. But here's what J.I. Packer said. Uh, he said this about what is a Christian. 
He said the question can be answered in many different ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is someone who has God as their father. God is their father. So at the foundation of what it means uh, is this, uh, to, be a, to be a Christian is uh, the realization of the fact that we are sons and daughters of God because of the gospel, because of our yes to Jesus, right? Uh, and it doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that because we've been adopted as sons and daughters, um, that, uh, that we are also heirs. John Piper said this. He said, the greatest good of the gospel, I love this, it's so simple. The greatest good of the gospel is that we get God. We get God. God speaks on our behalf, right? Uh, we just get God. And let me tell you, there's a big difference, friends, between saying, I want to go to heaven because I don't want to go to hell, and saying, I want to go to heaven because I want to see my Jesus face to face. Those two reasons for wanting to go to heaven are worlds apart. And the motivation for those two things are worlds apart. So let me say this another way. There's a big difference between saying... I don't want to go to hell because I hate suffering and saying, I want to go to heaven because I want to look on the loving face of my heavenly Father. There's a world of difference between those two views. And so those are worlds apart and the greatest good of the gospel is that we get God and we get to respond to the love of Jesus by loving him back the hope held out by the gospel is that because of the son of God we become sons of God and it doesn't stop there we are also heirs heirs uh, so in 1992, there was a waitress, 17 years old. Her name was Kara Wood. She was working at Drin's Colonial Restaurant in her hometown of Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Kara was a good waitress. She was friendly. She was outgoing. One of her customers, a widower uh, by the name of Bill Cruxton, liked her so much, he would always sit in her section. You probably have a waitress that you really like somewhere, right? And whenever you can, you, you know, maybe you'll sit in her section. Bill was a widower he had no children he went to the restaurant every day for meals and some company and he and Kara actually became friends as their friendship deepened Kara even began to run errands for him she began to do some things for him around the house and then suddenly though in uh, the end of 1992 uh, Bill suddenly passed away I mean he was in his 80s you know and uh Kara found out that she had inherited most of his wealth, that she was one of the main beneficiaries of his will. And uh, so she inherited over half a million dollars just because she was kind to someone, right? And uh, so she understands, she says, that she has much to be thankful for. She says, I'm lucky, I'm fortunate, and I'm kind of coming to understand that. I want to give you another situation. There was a man from Portugal. His name was Luis Carlos Cabral de Camara. 
This man would often boast of his Portuguese lineage, but happiness for him was never part of that lineage because as the illegitimate and unloved son of an aristocratic woman, he was rich, but he had no friends, many failed marriages, and no children to show for any of those marriages. So uh, what he did when it came to writing out his will Uh, He asked a Portuguese notary for a copy. I'm not making this up. This is a true story. You can look this up for yourself. He asked for a copy of a Portuguese Lisbon phone book. And at random, he went through that phone book and picked out 70 names and made every one of those people heirs of his vast fortune. So when he died 10 years ago, back in 2007, he, his randomly chosen heirs began receiving lawyers' letters telling them that they could claim a share of his fortune. Uh, one of those heirs said this, a 70-year-old woman said, I thought it was some kind of a cruel joke, she said. I'd never even heard of the man. Another's, other of his heirs were concerned that it wasn't just a cruel joke. They were actually concerned that it was a scam, some way to actually get money from them. Uh, one of his heirs said it this way. He said, things that seem to be too good to be true usually are, right? I mean, who wouldn't be skeptical of such a fortune at random? And yet, This is the very hope held out by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are heirs of all that is is God and all that is God's. But here's what's interesting. When when I think about being an heir, uh, I want to be more specific. I want to help you think more concretely about what it is that we've already inherited and what it is that we stand to inherit. And in verse 6, Paul gives us, uh, he says the first thing already. He says in verse 6, because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son, in other words, the Holy Spirit, into our hearts, right? Um, uh, crying, Abba, Father. Now, this word Abba, Father, Abba is an Aramaic word, and it's a word a toddler might use to refer to their dad. It's a word that uh, someone really young might say. It's a word like dada or papa. Um, That's really what the word means. And so we're told that because we're sons, God sends the Spirit as a down payment into our life, guaranteeing the rest of our inheritance. But I want to talk about what it means to inherit the Spirit of God. Here's what it says in Ephesians 1. It says, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, in other words, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed it or you said yes to it, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it to the praise of His glory. And then a little later in the book, I want to talk about two two things that we can do as it relates to the Holy Spirit that we've inherited, that has been sent into our lives into our heart. Paul says, after he says this, a little later in the letter, he says this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I want to remind you of something. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is a person. 
that He has desires for you. He has a heart to want to bless you and bless your life. He, want, he, he was given to you to bring good things into your life. And so when you resist His promptings, when you say no to His gentle urgings, that grieves the Holy Spirit. It, it gives Him grief because you're not giving Him the rightful place in your life, right? So that grieves the Holy Spirit. And then there's another command that's given in a different letter that goes in hand in hand with grieving the Spirit. And it said this, it's 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Now, to quench the Holy Spirit, in this case, means to put out His fire. Don't put out the fire of the Holy Spirit in your life. How do you do that? Well, you do that, we do that, I do that, when I resist His promptings. When He's moving me to do something and I say, no, I put out the, whole, the Spirit's fire. And in quenching the Spirit, I also grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul says, look, don't do that. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I want us to get super practical and concrete about what it means to grieve the Holy Spirit, what it means to quench the Holy Spirit. So I want to introduce you to somebody, okay? I want to introduce you to Harry and Sally. Harry and Sally met at church, and uh, here's we're going to say a few things about Harry and Sally. First of all, Harry and Sally have a sense of chemistry in their relationship. They feel attracted to one another. We're also going to say that Harry and Sally are both followers of Jesus. They both said yes to the gospel. So they both have the Spirit of God living within them. And we're also going to say that Harry and Sally are married, but they're not married to each other, they're both married to other people, okay? Now again, this initial feeling of chemistry or attraction between Harry and Sally is not a bad thing. It's not wrong or sinful in and of itself. It's just raw material. But it's what Harry and Sally will choose to do with this attraction that they have between themselves that will make all of the difference, right? In other words, how are they going to respond to this attraction? Because they can choose one of two roads. They can choose to go down a wrong road with that sense of attraction, or they can choose to go down the loving and the right road with that sense of attraction, right? And a lot of times people will get on the wrong road. They'll make bad decisions and bad choices related to this and get all the way to the end of where that road takes them. And then they'll go, how did I get here? I mean, how did, I, how did my life end up in such shambles? And I want to contend something. I want to say something. I want to say that it's harder in the beginning to walk down the wrong road than it is to walk down the right road. It's harder in the beginning to walk down the wrong road. And here's why. Because if you're going to go down the wrong road in the beginning, you will have to do something. You know what you'll have to do? You will have to resist the Holy Spirit. 
You will have to grieve the Holy Spirit and you will have to resist and grieve the Holy Spirit over and over and over and over again. It works like this. Um, Anytime you have a desire or an emotion, right? In this case, it's an attraction. If the Spirit is with you and the Spirit is in you, that Spirit is always going to prompt you in a direction that is pleasing to Jesus. Uh, That Spirit will gently prompt you to lay that desire, to lay that emotion, to lay that attraction before Jesus and to ask Him the question, Jesus, what do you want me to do with this desire? What do you have for me in this desire? What don't you have for me in this desire? And here's something I need you to hear that's very important. Jesus will never lead you to express or manage a desire in a way that is destructive to someone else, destructive to another marriage, destructive to the children of that marriage. He will never, ever, ever lead you in a way that is sinful or selfish or wayward. wayward. He just never will. So if you want to walk down that road, the very first thing you've got to do is you've got to quench, you've got to silence, and you've got to resist the voice of that Spirit inside you, which always brings Him great grief. Because again, He's a person with a personality, right? And desires. And when we resist Him, that breaks His heart. Quenching the Spirit, and here's what quenching the Spirit means. Here's what resisting the Spirit means. It means that you've got to make sure that your life moves so fast that you never have any time to think on what you're doing. Because you don't want to feel ashamed or guilty about it. And so you'll just fill your life up with busyness and distractions. And you'll try to move so fast so you don't have to think about it. It means that you won't want to go to church anymore. Because if you go to church, somebody might address that or talk about it. And you might feel shame or guilt and a need to reverse your course, right? It means that you're going to want to make sure you don't ever pray about it. Because, hey, if you pray, the Holy Spirit might convict you or speak to you and you're not really ready for the Holy Spirit to do that in your life right now and I'll tell you something else you're going to want to keep it secret right because if Harry and Sally are going to get together and follow through in that attraction in an ungodly way then nobody can know about that because the minute so so you're not going to ask other people's opinions you're not going to invite Christian community you're not going to invite the bride of Christ into the discussion and in all of these things you are resisting you're quenching the holy spirit of god furthermore you got to make sure you don't read your bible because you want to you want to avoid scripture passages that might be you know inconvenient or in your way about the direction that your life is going right so you're not going to uh, but you know you're not going to open god's word anymore here's what i'm telling you over and over and over again you will have resisted the holy spirit of god um and you know and it's it's like you've got to make space in your mind right for you to be able to go down that road that the holy spirit would say don't do that 
don't, don't go there. And that quenches the spirit and it grieves the spirit. Now later on, when you get real far down that road, when you get, you know, kind of in the grip of the desire, you're going to feel a lot of pain and guilt. I said earlier, when your life is in a shambles, right? But by then, see, you'll feel trapped. And it's very, very difficult for you to get out of it because at the beginning, you have already quenched and grieved the spirit over and over and over again. And so here's what I'm saying. You know how you and I can avoid taking a desire and walking down a wrong road with it? We just stay open to the Holy Spirit of God. Like when He prompts us, we, we listen, we, we, you know, we develop, and it's like anything else you learn, right? I mean, so for example, my wife Jackie and I, who's sitting here in the front row, sometimes we'll have a conversation, and later we'll revisit that conversation, and we'll kind of ask ourselves a question, and the question is this, were we even in the same room together when we had that conversation? Like, neither of us understood that conversation in the same way. How did that happen? I mean, what went so wrong, right? In the, and so you learn over time how to better communicate with people when you're married to them. It's the same way with the Holy Spirit, friends. You learn to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. You learn to recognize its tenor. You learn to recognize His authority in your life. But you have to learn it in the same way that I have to learn to communicate better, you know, with the wife of my youth, right? So we learn that. Now listen, I want to talk about and this is so important because if we're talking about our inheritance being the Holy Spirit of God, why is it so important that I not grieve the Spirit or that I not uh, quench the Holy Spirit of God? And I want to talk about this. One time Jesus, uh, he, was, he knew he was going to send the Holy Spirit, and so he said this in John 16. He said, when the Spirit of truth comes, that Spirit will glorify me. Now this is huge. See, the Holy Spirit does not seek His own glory, but He instead always glorifies Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit does not desire to have attention focused on Himself. His constant ministry is to cause people to focus on Jesus. So uh, one of the... uh, New Testament theologian, his name is Dale Bruner, he says that the Holy Spirit can be pictured in this way. He says this, and I love this. He says, the Spirit always withdraws from sight and points to Jesus, saying, notice Him. Listen to Him. Pay attention to Him. Fall in love with Him right? Be preoccupied with Him. So the Spirit always points to Jesus, never to Himself. And that's the whole ministry of the Spirit. It's not to draw attention to Himself, but to keep drawing people back to Jesus. And here's what Bruner says. And listen, if you've dialed out for a minute, dial back in. I want you to hear this. He says, it's often been said that the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of the Trinity. 
the greatest neglected person of the Godhead. But the Holy Spirit's desire and work is that we would each be overcome again, thrilled again, excited again, gripped again by the wonder, the majesty, and the relevance of Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit never magnifies Himself. It's always Jesus. And here's what He says. Listen, the Holy Spirit does not mind being Cinderella outside the ballroom if the prince is being honored inside His kingdom. And I love that. That's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. Just the humility of the Holy Spirit of God. Right? So when our daughter Jamie was young, one of the movies that um, her mother and I watched with her was Walt Disney's Snow White. Uh, Most of us have probably seen it. And I was a little surprised when I watched that movie with my young daughter because I'd kind of forgotten how scary Snow White uh, could be, like when you're a little girl especially, right? I mean, when the Wicked Witch showed up, I mean, Jamie was a little afraid, right? When Snow White took the poison apple, she was really, really upset. And then at one point in the movie, I got kind of upset. I did, and I'll tell you why. It was when Snow White began to sing, Someday My Prince Will Come, because sitting there, I started to think, I'm sitting next to this little girl, my daughter, and one day, her prince is going to come, and that prince will kind of replace me, right? And that didn't seem like a very good option to me at the time. And it was weird because all of a sudden I had all this empathy for the dwarves in Snow White. And I'll tell you exactly why. Because the the dwarves are the guys that risk everything for her, right? I mean, they support her, they feed her, they protect her, they shelter her. And then when the prince comes along, they kind of get the shaft, I mean, they kind of get left behind. I mean, all the stuff they did for her just kind of gets forgotten about, right? And it's just her and the prince. And I'd never really thought about that before. But as a dad, I really began to admire those dwarves. You know, are you with me? Right? Now listen, here's, here's what's even more amazing about the dwarves in Snow White. They are not upset when the prince comes. I mean, they're excited. They're thrilled for her. Their love for her is so pure and so beautiful. And the prince gets the bride and all they do is rejoice. They just rejoice. And this is what Dale Bruner is saying. He's saying this is the way the Holy Spirit is. Right? The Holy Spirit is this way. He keeps telling His bride, the church, love the Prince. Love Jesus. Follow the Prince. But then when we look at the Prince, when we look at Jesus, we see, oddly enough, that the Prince didn't walk around going, I'm the Prince, look how cool I am. Look at me, I've got it all together. No, he says, hey, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and you're going to be better off because you have the Holy Spirit. The Son defers to the Spirit 
and the Spirit defers to the Son. And both the Spirit and the Son defer to the Father. There's this humility, this beauty, this love. This, I mean, there's no selfishness in the Holy Trinity of God. Only surrender. Only yieldedness, only a desire that the other members of the Trinity would get all the glory and all of the credit. And that's why it's so important that you and I listen to the Holy Spirit of God. Because He is humble and He is pure and He is beautiful and He is holy and He is for you and more importantly than being for you everything he does centers around our prince our savior our jesus and he points us to him so we inherit the spirit of god and we have to we have to handle that inheritance wisely and carefully we have to not grieve the spirit we don't want to quench the holy spirit of god but that's not all that we've inherited we haven't just inherited the spirit of god as if that wasn't enough and by the way i want to remind you that every good thing that comes into your life as a follower of jesus comes by way of the holy spirit everything there is no blessing you don't have that has not been provided to you directly by the Holy Spirit of God. But not only have we inherited the Spirit of God, folks, I want you to think of something. We've inherited the promises of God. And I want you to think of the dozens, even hundreds of promises that God has made to His people. And we've inherited every single one of those promises. Check out how Hebrews, Hebrews 8 says it. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For He is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God. And here's what I love. Based on better promises so i want you to think about that think about every promise made to the nation of israel in the old testament the author here is saying look the promises that we've inherited the promises from god that we've received are even better than those i mean this is absolutely amazing and so what i want to do look if we were going to do a series on the promises of god it would take us months to unpack all of the promises that God has made to us, right, in the new covenant. So I just want to talk about two, just to help us get centered and to settle into this. Just two today. Here's the first one. This comes out of Hebrews 13. First promise. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you that's the promise right there i will never leave you i will never forsake you i don't know if you've ever had this experience maybe you walk into a party you walk into a, a social event and you walk in and you walk in alone and people are in little groups you know there's two people talking over here there's three or four people talking over here and people kind of look up and you just you feel awkward right and you feel like you're, you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm with all these people and I've never felt more like alone, you know, than I do right now. Listen, this promise, like when you filter that through the lens, the hope held out by the gospel, God says, look, you're never alone. 
Because I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And so when you filter that through the lens of the gospel, you go, look, even though I may feel alone, I know I'm not alone because God has promised me that he will never leave me and that he will never forsake me. There is not one moment of your life, not a moment, friends, where you ever have to do anything by yourself or alone. Not one. God has promised you his presence. Here's another one. Look at this, Romans 8, 39, another promise. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every one of us have had moments. Maybe we're laying in a bed at night. Maybe we're sitting with our head down after a long day where we'll have this thought. We'll have a thought something like this. I am unloved. And I am unlovable. And the gospel would say, there is nothing about that that is true. But God demonstrates His own love for for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because He died for us, there is nothing He will withhold from from those who belong to Him. Right? Nothing. Listen, there is nothing in all of creation. That means there's nothing in the universe that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not trials, not tribulation, not death. Nothing. There is nothing. So in those moments where you would say, I am unloved and I am unlovable, Jesus would say, nope, nope, nope. You have that entirely wrong. You have been loved for for eternity. And I love you deeply. I love you profoundly. The love of God. The love of God is one of the things that we inherit, right, in the gospel. The promises of God, the presence of God is one of the things that we inherit because of the gospel. And there's dozens, hundreds more promises of God that we inherit that if I were going to try to get into it, it would take us years to unpack it all, right? But I want to talk about the third thing that we inherit from God, and it's just the resources of God, the resources of God. The Old Testament says it this way, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's kind of a Hebrew way of saying God owns everything. God owns the universe. There isn't anything in heaven or on earth or across the vast expanse of the entire universe that doesn't belong to Him. And in a way I don't understand, and in a way I can't comprehend, we will one day inherit all of that, right? We, we think a lot about inheritance and, and all that, but friends, that's whatever meek little small inheritances we may receive on this earth, it is nothing compared to the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. And I'm running behind, but I have to share this story. I want to talk to you about the power of this gospel. The resources of God is why Paul would say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so let me ask you a question. Why are you saying you can't when God has said that you can? 
Why should you say for one more minute, I can't do this, I can't make it through this, I can't endure this, when God has said, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Furthermore, because of the resources of God, you and I have wisdom. There are some of you at a crossroads right now, and you're saying, I don't know what to do. I'm confused. I feel lost. There's a promise in Scripture you need to know this morning. Look at this, James 1.5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. So the promise here is that if I'm ever unsure about what to do or a way to go, God will always lead me and guide me in the way that I should go by giving me the very wisdom that I need. Now I tell you, friends, as a pastor, I wade into things two or three times a week. I know I don't have the wisdom for. And God has been faithful for all my years to give me wisdom every single time. And he won't fail to give you the wisdom that you need either. So what I want to do is I just want to read a little of Kim Engelman's story on power. I'm going to go ahead and invite the praise team up. And while they're coming up and we respond to the love of God, um, I want to read you this story. And we're going to get out a little bit late today. I apologize for that. That's all on me. Okay? But you just have to hear this story because it could be your story. So this is from Kim Engelman, and she writes this. I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey. I knew a lot of powerful people in academia. I remember having play dates with children who lived in mansions with elevators to get them to the top floor. The owners of these mansions had dinner parties with the best china, with people who had discovered the latest equation or uh, written the most recent document or come up with the most cunning invention. Albert Einstein's house was two doors down from ours. I remember going into his study and smelling and still smelling of pipe smoke and holding his Nobel Prize in my hands. We had senators over all the time, professors and famous authors. It was a great show, and there was nothing wrong with any of it in and of itself. But the funny thing was, after they all left, our house just always felt empty again. A key member of my family had a mental illness, and that person had great power over me. That was the reality on my inside. The slam doors, the depression, the arguing, the name-calling, the ongoing strife and tears, the secrets that no one in my family wanted to tell. We kept going to the shows, but inside we were bitter, unsettled, and scared. And in the middle of all of that show of power on the outside, I was trying desperately to find some meaning and purpose for my life on the inside. I was in the midst, she writes, of very powerful people who knew a lot of things, but they didn't know or love me. And then she says this, then the power of the grace of Jesus saved my life. And she writes about saying yes to Jesus and open up, opening up her life to Jesus and receiving what she called an inside-out power. An inside-out power. In other words, it wasn't a show. It wasn't about pomp and circumstance and who you knew. 
It was all of a sudden about who knew you on the inside and the Holy Spirit of God and His power and His resources. And the reason I share that story with you, listen, I didn't grow up in Princeton, New Jersey. I didn't grow up in that kind of academia. I grew up in the backwoods of West Virginia. And I met the same Jesus that Kim Engelman would meet in Princeton, New Jersey. I didn't know a lot of powerful people, but now I know the most powerful man in the entire universe. And so can you. It's the hope held out by the gospel, and the gospel is an amazing thing. It's a wonderful thing to build your entire life on. So what we're going to do is we're going to sing about that, and uh, we're going to sing one song. It's a new song, and it's a song called Love Changes Everything, and nothing could be truer than this song. So as our team worships, would you guys just stand and worship with them? You're going to love worshiping in the next few moments. Let me pray for you before we do.